Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Well, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 5 is where we find ourselves, where we left off last week. We come to verse 30. We're going to handle the end of the chapter from verse 30 to verse 47 this morning. As you're finding that, let me remind you uh, that uh, we're going to take a little break in John after today, and we're going to pick John 6 back up um, in August sometime because I'm taking a brief little summer sabbatical, so I'm going to be not preaching, and Robert and Tyler and Ruben Moyana will be preaching for the balance of the summer into August, and then I'll be back, and we'll pick back up in John chapter 6. And as you're finding John chapter 5, let me also mention that if, uh, I just want to make you aware, we don't usually talk about things like this, but uh, I just feel that you guys should, we should know this as a church, that we have a, a member of our church who is on a great national stage today. Uh, Russell Henley is a professional golfer, and a uh, yeah, couple fans, yeah. Got a golf fan out there, and he is tied for the lead in the U.S. Open uh, today, which is one of the major golf tournaments. And so uh, this is just an opportunity for a brother who the Lord has given great skill to and a love for Christ for him to be just a light in this arena that at least for a few hours on a Sunday will be a grand, really not only national, but international spotlight. And so um, I I want us to pray for Russell and his family now in just a moment as we pray for the word. Of course, we want Russell to win. (laughs) Of course, we know that. But I think think our prayer needs to go beyond that. Uh, I think the Lord cares about everything, but his purposes and his plans go, go beyond uh, just winning and losing golf tournaments. Uh, but I pray that God, in fact, I was, uh, I was uh, watching the coverage yesterday, and this reporter alluded to this interaction with Russell, where they asked Russell if he needed to win, or what he needed to win, and, and he said something along the lines that he didn't need to win anything because his sufficiency is in his faith in Christ. And so praise God that whatever happens, that this would be an opportunity for a, a follower of Christ to be a witness um, in places where oftentimes the witness of Christ is not uh, present. So let me pray for us as we get into the Word and pray for Russell. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for Colin and Katie. Lord, thank you for this beautiful couple, for their beautiful children for bringing them to Fort Benning and Cross Point so many years ago and then sending them away to another post and coming back again and feeling this call to the nations from the incubator of this congregation, how kind you have been to us and to them. Lord, go before them as we've already prayed. Lord, we pray for our brother Russell and his wife Teal and their family. Lord, we're so thankful for the skill that you've given our brother in uh, this arena of life. We do pray, Lord, that certainly our heart is that he would win, but far beyond that, we pray that you would use Russell's skill and that you would use his
that you would use his witness for Christ in this arena that desperately needs the light of the gospel, that you would use this to make much of Christ through his, through his testimony. And Lord, we turn our attention now to the scriptures. We, we ask that you would meet us in John chapter 5, that we would understand the, the point that Jesus is making here and that as a result of our time in the word that we would draw closer to you and that we would be made more like Christ and that any unbelievers that are present this morning would come to faith in Jesus. And we pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, my microphone went out in the middle of my prayer, and so I'm going to go back to it and see. We're going to try it one more time. Testing, one, two, one, two, it's back on. Good. I am so much more comfortable when I can use my hands. I think you guys know that. And in the middle of my prayer, I was thinking about how I was going to express myself by holding a microphone. Well, here's, here's what this text is saying today. <laughs> Everybody looks at the sound guy, the poor sound guy. It's not on him. It's probably some little gremlin in the system. Here's what I think this text is saying today. Jesus is defending himself. He has healed a man on the, ha- on the Sabbath in John chapter 5 at the beginning, and now the religious authorities are, they have their sights on Jesus because what Jesus has done at the beginning of John chapter 5 is on par with something that only God could do. He, he heals a man on the Sabbath, and he is claiming to be the Son of God, which isn't how we would call ourselves the children of God. He's, he's claiming equality with God, which is infuriating the religious leaders of Israel in the day. He's threatening their power structures, and now in the second half of John chapter 5, he's defending himself against their accusations, which are going to mount through the rest of the Gospel of John. And here in the, chapter, the, the verses that we looked at last week, he talks about his authority, his, who he is. He's, he is the Son of God. And here he is going, in a kind of a sense, call four witnesses in a kind of courtroom scene. And so the breakdown of the text is Jesus calling four witnesses to his defense in a sense, even though he needs no defense. He's talking to people that he has created. Just note the humility of God and even entertaining these, these charges or these accusations against him. But he's going to call four witnesses, so to speak, that testify of his identity and who he is. And these, these four witnesses are John the Baptist and, and his miracles that he's performed, the Father himself, and the Scriptures. And I think that that's what we're going to settle down on, this last witness that Jesus calls. This point that I think of the text is, is that Jesus is saying that the Bible, the Scriptures, at this time just the Old Testament, points to him and to understand who he is we need to understand and believe the scriptures. And when we get to that last little point, we're going we're gonna to look at two truths that I think I want us to draw out and apply to our lives. So let me read along the way, and we're going to stop and explain along the way. Picking up in verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now that's interesting. Think about, think about the humility. Here's God in the flesh saying that if he bears witness about himself, it's not true. What's Jesus saying there? Isn't, doesn't he realize who he is? Of course he does. He's actually humbling himself and living in obedience to the Old Testament law, which in Deuteronomy chapter 19, Moses writes in the law, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that a, a single witness wouldn't uphold itself in court, that you need that every charge or case needs to be settled by the, by the witness of two or three people. And Jesus is actually walking in obedience to the very law that he has written. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know, I think he's referring to the Father there, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So, so what is Jesus saying here? He's, he's clearly not saying, he's not reducing his identity in any way. He doesn't need witnesses, but he is humbling himself underneath the very law that he wrote in the purpose of his humanity, even though he's gone. And just take note, as I mentioned just a second ago, the humility of Jesus, the humility of God all throughout the Bible. I think about this often as God bears with Old Testament Israel, as he bears with the New Testament church, as he bears with us, as he bears with me, that God could make whatever he wants happen, happen in the snap of a finger. But God is incredibly humble and patient with his people. And here we have God in the flesh actually conversing with people that he's created that are disagreeing with him. That's humility. And here Jesus is making a transition. Now he's going to call these four witnesses, even though all of them ultimately come from the Father, he's going to break it down into a four categories of witnesses. The first, John the Baptist. Let's look at verse 33 through 35. He says, you sent to John, meaning the religious leaders. They sent to, to ask John who he was and what he was testifying. Remember at the beginning of John, in John chapter 1, we read about how the Jewish leaders came to John to, to clarify what he was preaching. And he, back in verse 33, and he has borne witness to the truth. Remember, how John came out of the wilderness with, with, with this coat of camel hair, eating bugs and honey, and he's, he's testifying of who Jesus is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what, that's what John's ministry was all about. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So Jesus is saying, I didn't need John's testimony but I gave it to you as a gift, as a forerunner, as a voice crying in the wilderness. And what's the purpose of God giving, Jesus giving John the Baptist as his witness, as his forerunner? So that those who hear the witness of John might be saved. And embedded in verse 34, we just get the foundational bedrock of the purpose of Jesus's ministry. He didn't come merely to improve society, although clearly Jesus in the gospel does that. He comes so that those whom the Father has given him might be saved from the wrath of God and the penalty for sin. That's why Jesus came. And he says, he continues on about verse 35, about John's ministry. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp. 
and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And so the people, just a kind of a, an, a highlight of the fickleness of the crowd of people, they, they liked John for a while until his preaching started to step on their toes, and now they've moved on. Just a brief application before we, we move on to the next witness, which is the witness of Jesus' miraculous works. Just consider how Jesus, God himself in the flesh, has humbled himself in actually using humans to be his mouthpieces, his messengers, his forerunners. He sends John the Baptist. And, and in a sense, I recognize the uniqueness of John the Baptist's ministry. I'm not trying to make a parallel between John the Baptist and his ministry necessarily directly one for one and preachers or people that have shared the gospel with you or me. But, but think about, in a sense, the John the Baptists in a sort of way that God has sent to us, to you, to me, to pave the way for the gospel. Maybe the, the John the Baptist, the, the voice that cried out to you to behold the Lamb of God was your father or your mother or a big brother in my case who came to faith in Jesus. And when I was in high school, my older brother, over the course of three years when he would come back home from college, would share the gospel with me as much as he could. And the Lord used the voice of that messenger in my life to chip away at the hardness and the self-righteousness of my heart and bring me to faith. Who, who has he sent to you? And that's just a, a kindness of the Lord. Let's keep going. The second witness he calls is his miraculous works. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's saying that the, the very works that I'm doing. Well, the most immediate reference, I think, is to the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda that we just read about, read about in John chapter 5. But there are, are other miracles. The, 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 the healing of uh, the official's son at the end of chapter 4. And then we're going to go through John where there are going to be seven signs. And of course we read in the other gospels where there are numerous miracles that Jesus performs. In fact, when we get into John chapter 6 in August, Lord willing, we're going to read about maybe the, the, the most well-known of Jesus' signs where he feeds the multitudes and then walks on the water back to back. And what is Jesus saying here about the purpose of these signs? Not so that we would stare at the sign, but that they would bear witness of his identity and who he is. That's what Jesus is saying here, that he's given these works so that we might believe that he is God in the flesh and that we might have life in his name. Now, just a word about miracles and our, our modern sensibilities. Uh, we clearly, I think we all need to ad admit that God does not work or has not worked in the same way in a kind of cluster of miraculous works in our time as he did in the first century through the ministry of Jesus and then shortly after through the apostles. And I think there, there is a purpose in that. I think because the purpose, 
the primary purpose of the miracles that we see in the Bible are to authenticate and validate the authority of Jesus as the Son of God or of his particular messengers. We see that in the Old Testament with Moses. Moses and the plagues that he brought to Egypt were given primarily to authenticate and warn God's enemies and the people of the validity of Moses' ministry in his words and to warn God's enemies if they did not obey what Moses was commanding, what God was commanding them to do through Moses. And here in the life of Jesus, we see these miracles that are given to cause people to believe. And we see that also in the works of the apostles. And we see mighty works being done through this group of men called the apostles so that it would validate, verify their authenticity as being specially sent by Jesus because they become the men who write down the Bible. And now that we have the Bible, now that we have God's scripture, which has the authority of God, I don't think we need miracles in the way that we needed miracles in the first century or in the time of Moses. Now, that is not to say that God cannot do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, whyever he wants, with anybody that he wants. God can clearly perform a miracle. And we should pray for God to perform miracles. If there's somebody sick with some dreaded disease, we should pray for God to heal them. And even though we know that God has given the common grace of medicine, we can pray that God would do incredible things that we cannot imagine. We have that privilege and we should pray for that. But let's realize that really the, the greatest miracle of all is that God would take our dead, rebellious hearts and open our eyes to see who Jesus is. See, the, the, the glory is not in the walking on the water or the feeding of the multitudes. It's in turning a dead heart and making it alive. In fact, we're going to read in John chapter 6 where the vast majority of the crowd saw Jesus produce food out of nothing, walk on water, and at the end of that, he preaches a hard sermon, and they say, nah, no, I'm not buying it. The point is, is that we can see glorious things and still not believe Jesus. We need a new heart in order to believe the greatest miracle of all, that God became man and died on the cross for our sins. And just one little thought before we move on. Just, friends, we, we, are, we are centuries removed from a cluster of God's working in this way, and we have a kind of modern sensibility. But do you understand, if you are a biblical Christian, if you are a person that believes the Bible, you believe that God can do whatever He wants, however He wants. When He is a God of miracles. He is not bound by anything. God causes the sea to part. He causes fish and bread to multiply. He causes the dead to get up from the grave physically. He causes axe heads to float in the water. He causes bread to fall from the sky. He does what he pleases. Okay, verse 37 and 38. Now we see the witness of the Father. Jesus calls in the, the greatest witness of all, his own Father. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice 
you have never heard his form you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent so that he's chastising now he's chastising the religious leaders saying that they don't believe the, the works and the words of God through him. And this is a kind, of, a kind of, he's rolling it all into one. This is all the work of the Father, sending John the Baptist, the miraculous works that he works through Jesus. And they don't believe him. They don't have the word of God abiding in him. This verse reminds me of Romans chapter one, where, where Paul says that, you know, nobody's without excuse. The Father's working. He's always speaking. In fact, we can look at the heavens, we can look at creation, and all humanity is without excuse because God is always witnessing of his power, and clearly he is witnessed of his reality to these leaders through the miraculous works of Jesus and John the Baptist, and now through the scriptures. And that's the fourth and final witness that Jesus calls in his defense, the witness of the scriptures in verse 39 and 40. He says, you search the scriptures... And remember, this is up to this point, the New Testament has not been written. So this is the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, here's his, here's his indictment of the leaders of his day. And yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. All right, now here I want us to unpack the two truths, and we'll spend the balance of our time just thinking about the witness of Scripture and what Jesus is saying here at the end of John chapter 5. Here in verses 39 and 40, I think Jesus is saying to the religious leaders of his day who knew the Old Testament factually, but were missing the ultimate message of the Old Testament, he is ch chastening them and indicting them for missing the point of the Scriptures. And what is the point of the scriptures? I want to give us two truths. Here's the first one, is that the Bible, the scripture, is ultimately about God's glory in redeeming sinners through the work of Christ. That's the first truth I want us to see. The Bible is ultimately about God's glory in redeeming sinners through the work of Christ. Now, we could say much more than that. We could elaborate on that. And we could spend a lot of time, but at, at a very baseline level, that is certainly true. That the, the Bible, in all of its wonder, in all of its complexity, in all of its unity, in all of its beauty, ultimately is a story. It's one grand narrative of God glorifying himself through creating a world that he knew would fall. And before that creation even happened, determining to redeem a, a great multitude of lost sinners through the death, the life, the death, the resurrection of God the Son in the flesh. That's what the Bible is ultimately about. And Jesus is saying that these, New Test these, these leaders, these first century leaders, are not reading the Bible in this way, and thus, they're missing the point of the Bible, they're missing the witness of the Scriptures, and they're missing who Jesus is. They were reading the Bible, they were reading the Scriptures wrongly, which makes me consider how we are prone in our day to read the Bible in the wrong way. Let me just give us three thoughts on how we often miss the point of the scriptures, how we 
read the Bible the wrong way to read the Bible. They're up on the screen. The first is that we come to the Bible as, as kind of mere morality lessons. Uh, it, it's, now, does the Bible teach morality and ethics? Absolutely, a thousand times yes. And there's much morality and ethics that we can learn from the Bible. But if you come primarily to the Bible as a kind of principle book, as a way merely to improve your life or be a better leader or whatever, a kind of pragmatic way of coming to the Bible, you miss the ultimate point of the Bible, which is not what first and foremost, what you can do, but what Jesus has done. Because we can't be moral enough. We, we can't be ethical enough. We, we can't be good enough. Are there commands? Yes, but they come as a result of the main message of the Bible. They're not the main message of the Bible. So we can't come to the Bible as a mere morality lesson. Secondly, I, I think we often come to the Bible as a kind of magic eight ball, uh, meaning, you know, you just kind of shake it, and, and it's almost like a little voodoo. It's like a promise book in a kind of, a kind of you know, superstitious sort of way. Now, is the Bible full of promises? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if we just cherry pick and we just come to the Bible for a kind of magic verse that will speak to our situation without understanding the whole context of the whole storyline of the Bible, we are prone to treat the Bible more like a, a, a fortune cookie or a magic eight ball or a, something that's kind of a superstitious promise box rather than the story of God's glory in redeeming sinners through the work of Christ. And then I think probably something that uh, many of us are prone to, I know I'm prone to, and sometimes this is a kind, of, uh, a kind of danger as you grow in Christ, is that we stand beside the Scriptures or beside the Bible rather than under it. And what do I mean by that? There, there can be, kind of come a sort of, as you grow in knowledge and grow in maturity, you, you have, we have to be careful to also grow in humility Otherwise, we sort of see ourselves arriving at a point where we're sort of standing next to God, looking at the world, judging it through the lens of the Bible with our hands folded and saying, yeah, look at all those people out there. I can't believe that they don't see things the way I do. When in reality, we are, when we do that, we're standing next to the Bible with our arms folded rather than under the authority of the Bible, walking in ever-increasing humility, growing in our dependence upon Jesus. Does that mean that we don't make judgments about the world, or we don't have very severe things to say about the world around us? No, of course we do, and at times we need to take those stands, but we need to be careful that we don't read the Bible in a kind of self-righteous, arrogant way. And I think that's what these first century religious leaders were doing in some sense. They were they're sort of standing beside the Bible, looking at how it made them self-righteous rather than standing under it, letting it produce in them a kind of humility and a need for a Savior. I think a better way to read the Bible, this isn't the only way, but this is just how I've, one of four trajectories, when I come to any passage in the Bible, I want to have these things sort of floating around, these four 
trajectories and questions in my mind as I come to the Bible. And these are, this is a kind of Christ-centered lens. And Jesus has said this, that the whole Bible is about him. It bears witness about him. So here's a better way to read the Bible. We want to we have an eye towards the holiness of God. That's the first trajectory that I think we want to approach the Bible with. What does this passage say about God, who he is? Secondly, the sinfulness of man. What does this passage say about mankind? How, how needy we are, how, how self-righteous we can be, how utterly dependent we are on him. Third, we want to see the grace of the gospel in the scriptures. How does this text point to Christ's work as the ultimate example? God is holy. Man is sinful. We are completely dependent on God to do for us what we cannot do through sending his son to bear the wrath of God on the cross and rise again in victory and give us his Holy Spirit so that where we were unable to follow him, we now have been enabled to follow him, which leads us to the fourth trajectory or thought about how to read the Bible in a better way is then look at finally after we see those things in the text, our obligation. How should we live in light of what Christ has done? Because the Bible is full of commands. It's full of imperatives. But if we don't approach those imperatives in the right way, they can quickly become a kind of religious, self-righteous pursuit rather than a response to the grace of the gospel. Do you see that? That final question, that final trajectory, our obligation, how should we live in light of what Christ has done, necessarily comes after we recognize the grace of the gospel and how Jesus has done what we could not do. So you think about the first century Jewish leaders. They're reading the Old Testament and they're seeing the promises of a Messiah, a Savior. They're seeing a picture of the suffering servant and they're reading it wrongly. They're reading this Messiah as one who will come to rescue them merely politically, merely nationally from Roman captivity. Or they're seeing in the picture of the suffering servant on the cross, they are seeing themselves as the victim. They're seeing themselves as the ones who are suffering. When in reality, all of those pictures in the Old Testament are not pointing to them primarily, but to Christ. He is the one that has come to conquer our enemies, but our enemies are far greater than Babylon or Assyria or Rome or some political party in our day. Our true enemy is sin and the devil, and our biggest problem is the wrath of a holy God that must be appeased, and none of us can appease it on our own. And so this Savior comes to save us from our sins. And this suffering servant that we see pictured in the Old Testament who bears the iniquity is not us, but it's Jesus who has come to bear our iniquity before a holy God. They would read the, the Old Testament stories of 
of maybe the faithfulness of Daniel or his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being persecuted by the Babylonian Empire. And they would see themselves as the ones in the fire or the ones being persecuted. But those are pictures of Jesus who bears, who bears the persecution of this world, who stands in the fire with us, and who comes out victorious. Or maybe... They were prone to see themselves in David, and they wanted a military captain like David who would slay the Goliath of the Roman Empire. But when we read the Bible with a Christ-centered lens, we realize that we're not like David, and we don't ultimately need rescue from our temporary situation, primarily. But we need a captain. We need a host of the Lord's army that will slay the giant within us that cannot be slayed on our own. And we need a new and better David who will defeat the Goliath of our sin and take God's wrath for us. And when we see that, it transforms the way we read the Bible and it humbles us and it protects us from making the Bible a mere morality tale it protects us from making it a fortune cookie, and it humbles us. And so we don't read the Bible standing next to it and using it as a club to beat up other Christians who don't share our convictions on secondary matters, but we use it as a, a, an authority that we all stand under. And certainly at times we speak prophetically from with great boldness, but we stand under it in great humility. That's the right way to see the scripture. Well, he continues on, verse 41 through 44, and he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, how does Jesus know that they don't have the love of God within them? Now, of course, he's God, and he can see into all men's hearts, but he's going to give evidence of why he knows that they're missing the point, that they don't truly love God. Why is it? Well, he's going to tell us in the coming verses. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. In other words, you believe all these false people you know, some guy that has a sharp YouTube channel and, and a nice website. I mean, you believe him. You believe that, Yahoo. Isn't that the human condition? We will believe crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. And yet, we won't believe what God says about his son. And here's, the, here's why. Here's why these leaders wouldn't believe. Verse 44, he says it. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Why couldn't they see according to what Jesus says in verse 44? Because they had blinders on and those blinders were their desire for glory from the world, from other people, rather than from God. And that leads us to our second truth here is that the desire for glory from people, horizontally, from those around us, the, the applause of man, the, the fear of man, wanting to be made much of, the desire for glory from people blinds our ability to believe and follow God rightly. We 
are insecure glory thieves by nature. That's what Jesus is telling these people, and I think he's warning us not to be the same. We are so often horizontally focused that we care what everybody else thinks. We want everybody else to like us. We want to be thought well of by people in our little tribe that we signal to them that we agree with them because we want their applause and it blinds us from seeing who God is and truly reveling in him. Someday when we get to John chapter 12, we're going to come across what I think is one of the most uh, stinging indictments in all of this gospel that Jesus has for the religious leaders. And he says in John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43, listen to this. He says, nevertheless, this is John, the gospel writer, writing. He says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved, listen to this, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's an indictment. Friends, we are prone to this as well. We're prone to this. And I think maybe more so, I know I talk about this a lot, and I don't mean this as a kind of cheap, easy application, you know, just to kind of, you know, yeah, that'll preach. I, I really, I don't, I, I, I don't like it when pastors do that. I don't like it when preachers do that. But I do think it merits constant reminder because it is a scheme, as we read in Ephesians chapter 6 earlier, it's a scheme of the devil in our time. And that is this, this, this connection that we have, this kind of faux, false connection and, and an entree into one another's lives that we have through social media. And it produces in us, and it's not just social media, it's looking at the world through a very small sliver of your preferred news outlet, and we cast aspersions, and we, we, we try and impress, and we virtue signal, and we tell the people that we want to impress, we signal to them that we're on the right side of whatever, and what it does is it produces in us a very subtle and often subliminal desire for the applause and glory that comes from man rather than being approved and pleasing God. And it's so subtle. It's so subtle. And it lurks in every little subculture. Maybe you're a, a, a mom. And, and, and you feel a little insecure about the way that you're raising your children. And so you throw some sort of, sort of self-deprecating but really kind of cool post about something that your children did out there just to sort of, just kind of feed the monster. Hey, everybody, am I okay? Am I okay? 
Or, or maybe you're somebody who cares deeply about theology or some cultural issue, and you just feel like you have to comment on how everything around us is going to hell in a handbasket and everybody else is going liberal and going woke and all these things. And it's your mission to proclaim faithfulness and let everybody know about how courageous you are behind a keyboard. You're a stud because you... Do you see what's... The danger that lurks behind that, that we, we want everybody to know that we're the faithful one on whatever side of the issue we're on. Or we want somebody to know that we're the compassionate person on some side of the issue. Or we want somebody to know that we're the conservative one on this side of the issue. Or whatever. Friends, it is a subtle spiritual trap that we need to be aware of. This world, this world is a discipling machine and it is trying to disciple you to define yourself, to find your self-sufficiency, to find your satisfaction in what even your tribe that may be right on a lot of issues thinks about you. And that becomes a hard master. Because then you have to agree with everything the people that you've aligned yourself with believe. And if you don't, then all of a sudden you are a heretic. Or you're a failure, mom. Or you're not a good whatever. Friends, that is a difficult way to live. And we are all prone to it. I'm just as prone to it as you are. I want to signal to my tiny little sliver of pastor friends that I'm doing it right. Congratulations, Brad. You got glory from 14 likes from a couple guys from Iowa. <laughs> my concern is, nothing, nothing wrong with Iowa, it just kind of came to my head. <laughs> People from Iowa are fine, I'm sure. I guess. Do, do you see the subtleness of this spiritual trap? It's like the, the world is weaning us, weaning us from seeing ourselves rightly through the lens of Scripture and wooing us to defining ourselves horizontally. And we need to be aware of that. We, we have to fight to make verse 44 not apply to us. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This has just popped in my head. Some of you need to fast from Instagram, Facebook, and social media. You need to fast. You need to get off of it. You need to wean yourself from your addiction to other people noticing what you have to say. Well, it's in this thing. Verse 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, 
Moses, on whom you've set your hope. So what's he saying there? He's using Moses as the author of a majority of the Old Testament, the author of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, or often referred to in shorthand as the law. He's saying that, you know, you, you, you don't think this is this a word that's, that's accusing you. And you've set your hope on the self-righteousness that you get from your wrong view of what Moses wrote. You read in the law about these dietary laws, the keeping of the Sabbath, some sort of festival, and all of these things weren't meant to produce in you a self-righteousness because you kind of obey most of the law, so you're better than these dirty Gentiles. It should produce in you a picture of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the fact that we can't keep God's law perfectly. And it should drive us to the one who is coming who can only and finally keep the law for us, which is Christ. But they were looking at Moses or the law as a means to prop themselves up rather than to humble themselves and push them to Christ. For if you believed Moses, verse 46, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus' point in these last few verses is that the law that you use to prop yourself up actually accuses you religious leaders. And when you read the Old Testament, it should not produce in you pride, but humility. It should drive you to Christ. It should drive you to me is what Jesus is saying. And the same applies to us. We need thee. Oh, we need thee. Every hour we need thee. That's the song that should come out of us when we read his scriptures that point us to Jesus. And we realize that believing in him, glory from him, trusting in what he's done is the point of the Bible, not making much of ourselves. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. May you use it to convict us, exhort us, transform us, recalibrate us, make us more like Christ. May it humble us. May it be, may it wound us and heal us. And Lord, for my friends that are in this room that came in not knowing Jesus, whether they realized it or not, Lord, by the miracle of sovereign grace, if there's anybody in this room or listening or will listen in the future that its heart is still dead in self-righteousness, would you give them a new heart so that they can believe, so that the word of the scriptures, the word of the gospel would drive them not into themselves in self-righteousness, but outside of themselves 
to Christ who has borne your wrath for the sins of all those that would trust not in themselves, but would believe and trust in Jesus, in his perfect life, in his wrath-absorbing sacrificial death for our sins, and in his victorious resurrection, and in his present reigning rule forever over all things. Lord, for anyone that does not believe that, would you give them a heart to see their need and know that their hope is, can only be found in Christ? And do this, Lord, I pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.